Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. I'm very excited about today's program. I'm going to be interviewing someone that I'm sure probably needs no introduction. If you're like me, uh, you grew up uh, watching this guy's tapes uh, back then that we watched, and then later DVDs and, uh, on creation, and without a doubt, um, I think influenced an entire generation of people, strengthened people when it came to their position about creation and what the Bible literally teaches about the age of the earth and uh, talked about dinosaurs and all that kind of stuff that was just fascinating to any kid and young person and still is even for an adults. And if you haven't figured out who I'm talking about, I'm talking about Dr. Dino himself, uh, brother Kent Hovind. And I am a very excited to have him on the program. So uh, brother Hovind, thank you so much. For coming on the program, appreciate uh, you being here. How's everything going down in Alabama? Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Glad you had me on your program. Uh, how's everything going? Well, God is good, but some of God's kids drive me crazy. Okay, <laughs> so God's been real good. It's amazing. I've been an evangelist for years, teaching on science in the Bible, and I was in Pensacola for thirty years. Someone gave us 140 acres here in Lenox, Alabama, straight north of Pensacola, 70 miles. We have built dinosaur adventure land. We've had visitors from 74 countries now. Come on down, pay us a visit. It's all free. We have cabins you can stay in. We'll feed you and house you and after a couple of days, put you to work. Okay. Well, that sounds exciting. Well, hey, well, today we're going to be talking about your book. I don't know if those out there, they've read it. What on earth is about sure. to happen for heaven's sake? Um, I read this one, uh, I think shortly after it came out. I was kind of at a, a point in my life where uh, I was uh, having a lot of doubts about the pre-tribulation rapture and what I had been taught on that. And then uh, I had heard that Kent Hovind himself uh, was uh, no longer pre-trib, which really got my attention. And then um, I remember when this book shortly after came out, somebody from the church bought it for me and I read it and I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. And so uh, if you want to just, you know, uh, we're going to talk today about, you know, your book, about your position when it comes to what is to come. But if we could just kind of start off, I have you tell us a little about, bit about what started you down this path of becoming a post-trib pre-wrath guy. Well, I guess reading my Bible is what's got me started. Um, <clears throat> for I was, you know, as a Christian, age 16, started going to an independent, temperamental, fundamental, right-wing, radical, chicken-eating Baptist church and loved it and ended up going off to college, getting ordained in 1974 and been a Baptist preacher now 49 years. And I was always taught Jesus comes back before the tribulation. And uh, they put me in prison for nine years for nothing over a tax thing, which did not break any laws. T type in Kent Hovind is innocent.net. Just watch those videos, see what you think. They just wanted to shut me up. So while I was there, I really got studying this. And I said, oh, wait a minute, why do I believe in this? Let me put, let me examine why. I guess what started was reading Matthew chapter 24. If you look at uh, Matthew 24 at the end of uh, in my, my chart, here's this timeline is a small version of the big one behind me here. You can get these for 10 bucks on our website, drdino.com. But on the back, I put all the verses from Daniel and Revelation that talk about this topic. Matthew, I mean, Daniel and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew 24, the disciples said, Lord, when are you coming and what's the sign we should look for? Fair questions. Lord, when are you coming back and what's the sign? Mark 20 or Mark 13, same question. Lord, when are you coming? What's the sign? Luke 21, same thing. For the next 20 verses or so, he talks about the time of tribulation, how bad it's going to get. Then at the end, he says, after the tribulation, the sun and the moon are going to go dark. After the tribulation, the sun and the moon go dark. And then I come get my people, come blow a trumpet and gather my children home. I said, how could it be so simple? And I missed it for all these years. What happened back in 1830, um, everybody taught that we're here for the tribulation because they understood there's a difference between tribulation and wrath. And there is a huge difference. A tribulation is what the world does to us. Wrath is what God does to the world. We're not here for the wrath of God. We're here for the tribulation. And we're here to win souls and influence people for the Lord. He wants to glean a few more grapes out of the harvest before he burns the vines down, I guess. But the sun and the moon going dark caught my attention. I found it's mentioned 10 times in the Bible. So we're raptured out when the sun and the moon go dark. 
Well, you can see all the verses. I got them all listed on my chart here. All 10 times the sun and the moon going dark are mentioned. And I'll call up better slides in a minute. We're here for the whole tribulation. But in 1830, a girl in Scotland, a 15-year-old girl, had a fever and was sick for a couple of days. And so while she was recovering from her fever, she had a dream and said, oh, wow, we get raptured out before the tribulation. And her dream got spread by Schofield and Dake Study Bible and all kinds of famous preachers in those days, started spreading this girl's crazy dream. And that's how the pre-trib idea got started. It's a dream by a 15-year-old girl in Scotland. Yeah, I I totally agree with what you're saying. And, you know, in your book, you know, you do a good job, too, of just showing uh, all the scripture behind what you're saying. Because, you know, as I'm listening to what you're saying, as somebody who studied it out and is in agreement, you know, I, I understand what you're saying is scriptural. I know that if you wanted, you could start referencing, referencing multiple scriptures. But... Unfortunately, theologies and um, extra biblical books typically went out in these arguments, it seems like. And so what you were saying uh, goes against what theologies say, because they have declared all of the tribulation is God's wrath. But as you stated, the tribulation is what the world does to us and and God's wrath. That's what he does to the world. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, really good stuff there. So. Um, your book that you wrote did, now, did you write this, uh, while you were still in prison? Cause I think it was around that time yes, sir. you were still there when it came yes, out. And I remember that. And so, uh, one of the things too, that, um, kind of got my interest around that same time too, when I was reading everything I could get my hands on, I had read Roland Rasmussen's book, which you make reference oh, yeah. to him in here. And you even have some of his charts, uh, in your book. And so I guess, um, you know, was was he um, somebody who was influential when it came to you coming over to this position? Because I know uh, he was kind of from a previous generation where there wasn't a lot of post-trib people in the Baptist world, but without a doubt, he did seem to uh, kind of pave the way in some areas and that I believe has helped and contributed. Yeah. He, I preached at his church and he was, he gave me that book when I preached at his church in California and it just, really got me thinking, wow, why do I believe this? Okay. As the Bible says in second, second Peter chapter three, it says the scoffers in the last days will be willingly ignorant of three things, the creation. What was that creation like? Why did they live to be 900 years old? People are ignorant of that. They're ignorant of the flood. The flood is what made all the layers we see to the earth in one year, all the fossils, the flood created Grand Canyon probably in you know a week after the flood, it's water. It's erosion. It's a big erosion canyon, a washed-out dam. And scoffers are ignorant of the coming judgment of God. Read Second Peter chapter 3. So I wrote my book on this topic, uh, What on Earth is About to Happen. You can get it on our website, drdino.com, or call the office, 855-BIG-DINO. If you want to talk to the secretary, I'm, I'm extension 3. If you want to call me after the interview is over, I'll be glad to answer any questions I can. See, the seven-year timeline I've got behind me here uh, is starts off with the creation about 6,000 years ago. God made everything in six days. Dinosaurs lived with man. You cover that on my video series, creation seminar series, you know, that we've been go using, sending out for years, 18 hours for 50 bucks, okay? Then the scoffers are ignorant of that flood in the days of Noah. And then here's Daniel. About 600 years before Christ, Daniel had visions of the future. And he wrote them down, the book of Daniel. When he got all done, he said, Lord, I don't understand what I just wrote. And Daniel, the Lord said, Daniel, you're done. Put the pen away. That's all I wanted you to write this down. 600 years later, the apostle John picked up the pen on the Isle of Patmos and finished it with the book of Revelation. So then we have this little yellow stripe right here, uh, which represents a seven-year period that Daniel talked about. And then we have this thousand-year period here called the Day of the Lord, which comes after the tribulation and the wrath of God. Then we have the final judgment at the very end. So... According to the Bible, God made the world and everything, the universe, everything, in six days, about 6,000 years ago. And the world was different. People lived to be 900. And we cover in our video series, why? 4,400 years ago, there was a flood in the days of Noah. Daniel was given prophecies about the future. And we could talk about that if you like. But if you really want to talk about end times, you need to start with Daniel, mm. 600 years before Christ. He was taken off to Babylon as a slave. He was one of the princes of Israel, taken mm. off as a slave. 
They neutered him, castrated him, and made him work for the Babylonian Empire. Daniel, in that Babylonian Empire, God gave him a vision. He said there are 77, 70 weeks. That's in uh, Daniel. <clears throat> you can read about Daniel's vision, Daniel 9. He said there's going to be 70 weeks appointed for thy people, talking about Israel. And I think most people who study this, and you can read my book on it if you like, would agree, 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. That's 483 years. It's a week represents a group of seven years. There's one left. Here's Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9. I'm coming to thee because to give you skill and understanding to know about all this. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. And how do you know when the last one starts? Well, the last week, he said, Go, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to build, restore, and build Jerusalem. Unto the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Well, score is 20, so threescore is 60. 62 and 7 is 69. So there are 69 weeks from the time they give the command to rebuild the temple. Well, that was in the book of Nehemiah and Esther, when they re Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, when they rebuilt the temple. <clears throat> Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. So there's still one week left. Three, seven weeks and three score and two is 69. Well, that leaves a seven-year period. I think most people who study uh, eschatology, the study of the future, agree. There is, after three score and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Jesus was killed. When Jesus was killed on the cross, they stopped the clock, prophetic clock, and now we're in what's called the time of the Gentiles. But how, how do we know when to start that last seven-week period? Well, he confirms the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he can cause the sacrifice to cease. So this seven-year period is broken up to two parts. The middle, three and a half years, the covenant gets broken. And you go through and you read up on the topic. And so I took this little yellow stripe and expanded it greatly to be this up here. Okay, it's the same thing. There's a seven-year period. The first three and a half years, the temple gets rebuilt. I think they're either starting soon or may have already made the treaty to start it. In the middle of that seven years, he breaks the treaty. So we can take any particular, particular topic you want to go on this, brother. But I think maybe we've already started the seven years. I don't know. We hmm. shall see. Anyway, you steer the conversation. No, no, that's interesting. So when it comes to the book of Daniel, because you mentioned starting in Daniel. Now, I've got opinions, but at the same time, they're opinions. I don't have all the answers when it comes to this. But uh, whenever you study the entire book of Daniel, there's clearly prophecies that are geared towards things that happened during the Greek Empire and, you know, during the Roman Empire. Um, you know, there's those who would connect it with, um, you know, Daniel 9 with what took place in 70 AD, which I subscribe to. You know, I believe there's such a thing as a dual fulfillment or foreshadowings and things right. like that. So, uh, you know, when it comes to your timelines and your charts that uh, that you have, um, you know, how sure are you when you're reading Daniel that these things are meant, I guess many of the specifics are meant for the future and aren't things that have already been fulfilled. That's been the problem throughout all of human history. You know, God wants us to study to show ourselves approved unto him. This February, I'll be been a Christian 55 years. And so I've been reading the book a long time, but I sure don't know it all. And I still have plenty of questions about it. But I'd say I'm 95% sure that this is exactly the way it's going to happen. We're starting with a treaty to rebuild the next temple. There's going to be a third temple built. And the Jews are chomping at the bit, ready to build it. Okay. Yeah. So when it comes to this book that you have, and I guess, you know, how has it been received by your pre-trib friends? I have. I went to school uh, with all pre-tribbers, and that's what I was taught growing up. And all my independent, temperamental, fundamental, right-wing, radical, chicken-eating Baptist friends were pre-trib. You know, it's a great doctrine. It sounds great. We could... And there's songs in our songbook. It could happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. It's a very comforting doctrine to believe we could be raptured out at any time. That's comforting. Mm. It's not true. Okay? Tell, ask the Christians in China what they think about the tribulation. They've been going through it for 40 years now. Okay? Mm. Ask the Christians in Muslim countries what they think. We're so soft here in America. We think, well, we're, we're not going to face any problems, no dangers. In Luke 18, 8, Jesus said, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? What a strange question. And it's never answered. It's one of those questions like, the answer is obvious. No. 
What if, what if it's, what if all the Christians are killed in the next seven years? What if you knew you had six or six and a half or seven years to go, and you're, you're not, and we won't even make it to the rapture. There's going to be tribulation so bad that very few are going to make it through. I think we shall see. Yeah, and it's, well, it's interesting you say that's a comforting doctrine too, because people will use the verse "wherefore comfort one another" with these words. They'll use that as proof that we're not here for the tribulation because uh, we're supposed to comfort one another with these words, even though the context is that they, to comfort them in the fact that they will see their loved ones again, that they had lost in reality while in tribulation there in Thessalonica. So, uh, but yeah, I agree. It is, it's, it's a tough thing to let go of for sure. And people definitely get very emotional about it. So um, now when it comes to, end times you know how much focus uh do you think we should have on israel and do you believe that there's still uh that god's not done with israel that there's a i guess a good future for them in a sense absolutely they are god's chosen people they're the natural olive branch they were broken off when they rejected christ well here there's a two thousand year gap between the first coming of christ and the second coming of christ uh it says in Luke 21, he shall, be, he shall be led away captive to all nations until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We are in the times of the Gentiles right now. When Jesus came to the city riding on the donkey, he beheld the city and he wept over it and said, this is the day. They could have made him king, but he knew they were going to reject him. He stood on and just wept over the city because they rejected him. So that stopped the clock for the Jews. Okay. Now we're going to get let the Gentiles put a wild olive branch in. Let them bear fruit for a while. We're not doing very well at bearing fruit either. He's going to take us out, put the Jews back in. He is, God is not done with the Jews. They are his chosen people. Now they have rejected their Messiah so far, and they're a bunch of crazy pagan doctrines that they have. I would, I would argue with them on hundreds of things, but they are God's chosen people. Okay? He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. So he left and he said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel in Acts chapter one? They still thought he was going to restore the king kingdom and get rid of the Romans. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He said, you just go witness for me. You shall be a witness. And so we spoke, they were supposed to be a witness of the Lord. And when he was taken up in a cloud in Acts chapter one, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, Two men stood by them in white apparel. I think most folks would agree that was probably some angels. Okay, And they said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken into heaven, shall so come in like manner. Now, what does that mean? He's taken up in a cloud. He's coming back in a cloud. And that's what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He comes in a cloud. He blows a trumpet. That's what you see in Matthew 24, the coming back in a cloud. So there's a thousand-year period that comes after the second coming of Christ called the millennium. Milli means thousand. So there's a thousand year where Jesus reigns on earth. So I took that thousand year period in my book and on my charts and divided it up into five slices so we can study it easier. But there's a great white throne judgment at the end. Now the great white throne judgment is for the lost. The judgment seat of Christ, which happens at the beginning when we're raptured out, is for the Christians. But anyway, we cover all that in my book and on my video series. But I think to answer your question, I think the Jews are God's chosen people. He has not done with them. Most of them have rejected him as Messiah. And there are some really crazy things going on behind the scenes over there. Some of the super rich bazillionaire Jews in the world that are pulling the strings, their pinky in the brain. They have a plan to make a new world order. It's all going to fall apart. So I would not say they're a godly people. I would say they are God's people, if that makes a difference. I understand. Yeah, I, under I understand that position. You know, it's not... It's not necessarily mine, but we're here to talk about yours. But do you believe, though, even in the particular state that they're in, that we should be supporting them uh, when it comes to their agenda politically? That's a very tough call, brother, because like I said, um, it's like our government in Washington. I love my country, but I fear my government. Mm. I think that's, that's good advice for anybody in any country because – Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you put somebody in power, it very frequently goes to their head and ruins them. There are some super rich bazillionaires, you know, pinky in the brain folks, that have their meetings to decide how we're going to 
how are we going to control the world today, Pinky? It really is, is, that's what they do. So should we support them? I would give that a qualified yes, up to a certain degree. Okay, they are, like, they're not godly people, but they're God's people. Okay. Okay, so uh, one question I'd like to have you explain, I maybe have some slides to help people with this because um, I've had people bring up the fact that, um, well, your position is a lot different than mine because they'll say you're a true post-tribber where a lot of people would call me a mid-tribber. But, and I know, uh, you know, you're, you're not familiar with everything I teach on the subject, but uh, something that I am familiar with is how, but confuses some people on my side, is on your timeline, you have a seven-year tribulation, but then you have God's wrath being 1,040 days after the tribulation. And so the thing Correct. is, you have us here for the same events that I believe we're here for, you know, the seals, but then you have us out of here for the trumpets and vials. I also agree with that. I guess... If, if I had a timeline, which I've not, I'm not creative enough to make one, but if I had a timeline, I would probably put it all within the seven years where you have it uh, going another 1,040 years or 1,040 days beyond the seven years. And it seems to me that's based on the 2,300 days of Daniel. You start right. that at the abomination of desolation. So could maybe you explain that uh, to the audience a little bit, your timeline and how that works there? Well, sure. Take my slides down there, brother. It's the timeline behind me here. Uh, the, there's a seven-year period called the seven-year tribulation. Then in the middle, the Antichrist breaks the treaty. So this starts off when Antichrist makes a treaty that allows them to rebuild the temple. It doesn't say they start rebuilding the temple, but they make a treaty to start rebuilding, So, which could have already been done. I don't know. I think it was in secret. But then there starts a three-and-a-half-year period called the Great Falling Away. The temple is going to be rebuilt. When they get ready to dedicate that temple, Antichrist is going to break the treaty and set up an image in the temple and tell everybody to worship it. There's all kinds of theories about that. One is that it's artificial intelligence. They have gotten to the point now with this AI robotic stuff that you probably could have a robot rule the world, especially if everybody had to have a microchip in their hand or forehead so they get controlled also. How, how, I don't know how far the biotechnology has gone on that. It's amazing. Back in the 1970s, they invented the barcode. You put the barcode on products, and you can scan that little barcode, and it, every one of them, since they started making it, the first two, two black lines is the computer code for six. In the middle, there's two skinny lines that go longer than the rest, the computer code for six. At the end, it's a six. Every one of them, since they started, was six, six, six. And they're still that way. So is that the mark of the beast? I think it's probably going to be some kind of microchip they can put in your hand or in your forehead, and you simply won't be able to buy or sell without it. That's the only punishment. You don't have a chip? Okay, you can't buy or sell. Well, that's pretty bad punishment. How many of you are buy or sell something? You know, I think all of us do, okay? So you won't be able to buy or sell. Then it says the treaty is broken and the, the temple is desolated. But when you read Daniel chapter 8, he said, how long is the temple going to be desolate? And they said 2,300 days. Well, half of seven years is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days in, in the prophecies here. And it uses the number 1,260 several times, talking about these two half seven-year periods. Well, 1,260 go way beyond, way beyond the end of the tribulation. So that's why I get the 1,040 days. I think this is the time when God's wrath falls. We get raptured up. We're at the marriage supper of the Lamb having a wonderful time. We get judged to determine our rewards, not to determine if you go to heaven. It's already been determined because you're there. It's only to determine the rewards. Do you get wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones? And the works are going to be tried by fire. And some people that we think have been fabulous Christians, they did all kinds of cool stuff for the Lord. They got a pile of rewards. It's going to all be hay, wood, or stubble because they did it for the wrong motive. Okay, God sees the heart. We can't see that. But anyway, the rewards are judged to determine at the judgment seat of Christ. This apparently determines what kind of place ranking you get in heaven, or maybe when we come back to rule on earth, if you get to be the governor of Lenox or the governor of Alabama or the president of the U.S., some kind of ranking of hierarchy, how, how much God trusts you. I don't know all that. But this 
1,040 days, about three years, I think is the best way to make it all fit like a Sudoku puzzle. You know, how do these all fit? I think the temple is desolate for 2,300 days, which runs over the 1260 by 1,040. While we're up at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Satan is ruling the world down here, and God's wrath is being poured out. At the end of the 1,040 days, we come back, we return on white horses with Christ. See, the second coming of Christ, he came once 2,000 years ago to Bethlehem. The second coming has two parts to it. The first time, he only comes down as far as the clouds, blows the trumpet, we're caught up, he doesn't touch down on earth. Then, at the end of the marriage supper of the Lamb, he comes down and we come with him on white horses, this time he touches down, and the Battle of Armageddon takes place. And so that's the best way I could draw the piece. And boy, I wrestled with this for a couple of years, brother, after I even got done writing my book for a doctoral dissertation and doing my charts. I said, Lord, I don't want to publish this unless this is right, you know, show me. And I read through it and studied through it a bunch of times. I, yes, I believe that's the correct sequence. This is what the church has always taught for 2,000 years, that we are here for the tribulation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until that crazy 15-year-old girl had that dream that it changed and invented this pre-trib idea. Mm -hmm. So the, the phrase pre-trib might scare some people. What is that? Trib is just a short word for tribulation, okay? Does Jesus come before the tribulation and catch us out? That's what this girl taught, and that's what I believe for years, and that's what many people believe today. Some people believe we get raptured out in the middle of the tribulation. The day of the Lord... The Bible says the wrath of God falls in the day of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord is a thousand years long. So the wrath of God has to fall in the day of the Lord. And I cover all the verses on my chart right here that talk about that topic. So I put it all together. I studied it till my brain hurts. And I think, I still think that's correct. We're here for the tribulation. We're raptured out oh, before the wrath of God falls. We are raptured out right here. When the sun and the moon go dark, it's called the day of Christ. The day of Christ is mentioned right here in all these verses. That's very different than the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a thousand year period, which I have greatly shortened here. I took out 230 feet to make it fit on my chart. Uh, but yeah, I, I would encourage people, read my book, read, watch my charts, watch my video series I did on that, where I taught through the whole thing, 21 hours teaching on what's going to happen. And get this on our website, drdino.com for a hundred bucks. Um, and when you're done, you can watch it, copy it if you want, send it back, get your money back. Brother, I used to loan my videos out. I learned immediately that Christians don't steal, but they borrow and never return. I'm not going to loan you nothing. But you buy it. When you're done, I'll, I'll buy it back off you. <laughs> I don't uh, know of a more fair way to do it. No, that, that, there's a lot okay. of truth to that statement for sure. I've got a lot of books that are still uh, are being, been lent out that I would love to get back someday. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's interesting, something that you said about how you think it's possible they already might have made an agreement in secret to rebuild the temple. And something that uh, I've heard others say, I've said this before, but it does seem that scripturally the event that we will for sure notice is like when the man of sin is revealed, uh, which, right. and so the, uh, I've heard a lot of people speculate that while the seven years will probably kick off with some kind of treaty about the building of the temple or something like that, we might not know because it does seem like, you know, Jesus said, when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, you know, when Paul said that day shall not come except that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So it does seem like that's like when we will know, it seems like there could be a period of time where stuff is going on and we'll be saying, is this it? But we're not real sure. And, and so it's interesting that you said that, but I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here because it's kind of, I, I think a good time to insert this, but uh, said it had been several years since I had read this book, but I went, I went back and I was kind of going through it. And one of the things I noticed that you had in here that uh, would appear is still relevant is while you said you don't know when Jesus is going to return, you did put a guess in the book. Right. Do you, do you still, is it still possible that your guess could be accurate? Yes. Uh, people were asking me, because I was writing this from prison and sending it out, getting it published a piece at a time on our website, drdino.com. People kept asking, when's the Lord coming? And I said very clearly, I don't know. However, if I had to guess, I'd say 2028. And here's my 10 reasons why I choose that. Okay. 
we know that our calendar we're currently using is off, okay? Jesus was not born in the year zero. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Dominio, in the year of our Lord. We know our calendar is off by at least three or four years. So Jesus was born in 4 B.C., which doesn't make any sense, okay? But he was, okay, because our calendar is off. Which means, and we don't know, we cannot prove his ministry on earth was three and a half years like people teach. There's only two Passovers mentioned that you can put together, which is probably a year and a half. Jesus' earthly ministry from the time he turned 30 was probably a year and a half. So he was 31 when crucified. He was the best guy, maybe 32. Which means if God's working on thousand-year increments, like it sure seems to be, it seems to be thousand-year chunks of days as a thousand years, Abraham called 2,000 years after creation. So I believe God's working on a, a big 7,000-year calendar from the creation up until the end of the world when we enter a totally new dimension called eternity. So if indeed Jesus was crucified in the year 28, which it seems to be uh, the number that most people come up with, then 2,000 years after that would be 2028. So if he's coming back in 2028, then the tribulation has to start 2021. So that's why I say they may have made a secret treaty already. And we may be already into this tribulation time partway. We shall see. My job is not to, you know, I'm, not, I'm not on the planning committee. I'm on the welcoming committee. Mm -hmm. uh, my job is to get ready to get, and get people saved. I don't know. It might be another thousand years. But I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run like the finish line's coming soon. And if it doesn't, I'll just keep running after that. Well, I tell you what, yeah, I, I, I hope you're right. Cause I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely ready for him to come back, uh, for sure. W without a doubt. So I'll oh, go ahead. Hang on. I got some guests here. They just want a signature. Then they're leaving. Okay. I give tours all the time here, brother. Oh, okay. That's okay. I can do that while I talk. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that gets you in a lot of trouble uh, whenever you are post-trib is another comforting doctrine that people have is the doctrine of imminency. And, um, right. and they act like if you don't teach imminency, you're encouraging Christians to be carnal. Uh, you know, you're not ready. You're not looking all that kind of stuff. You know, so what do you say to those who insist that the Bible teaches that the rapture is imminent? I would say for all of old Testament history, they had no concept of a rapture. They, that didn't give them a license to sin. They, were, they didn't talk about a rapture. They just, the, the idea that imminency is important to keep people right with God, I think that's dumb. I think you ought to serve God for other reasons than that. You know, did you only obey your dad because you were afraid he might be coming home at 4 o'clock and smack you if you, you, know, you didn't do right? Or did you obey him because you love him? Uh, I think that's a wrong method to, uh, A, it's a wrong reason to love God, and it's a wrong reason to tell other people they better love God. Or else he's coming back in you know uh, imminency. So I, I wish it was true. And there are all kinds, like I said, all kinds of songs in our songbooks about that. It could happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and soon and very soon I'm going to see the king. It's not true. Hmm. They asked him at the beginning of Matthew 24. Put my slides back up there, brother, would you? He sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came, said, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? Clear enough. Mark 13, same plus, parallel passage. When shall these things be, and what shall be the sign? Luke 21, when shall these things be, and what sign shall there be? It's clear as a bell what they're asking him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, line them up side by side like I did on the back of my chart here. When are you coming? What's the sign? When are you coming? What's the sign? When are you coming? What's the sign? Okay. In Matthew, for the next 23 verses, he talks about the time of tribulation. In Mark, he summarizes it 19 verses. Luke is 17 verses. At the end, he says, I'm coming back after the tribulation when the sun and the moon go dark. Read it for yourself. It's all right there in all three passages. When the sun and the moon go dark, after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. Well, that's exactly what they told the disciples when he was risen, rising up, you know, 2,000 years ago. They, he, they said, as he's gone up into heaven, so is he coming back. He can't went up in a cloud, he's coming back in a cloud. 
But these passages all describe the Lord coming back after the tribulation. The sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven, and he shall gather together, his, send his angels and gather together his elect. That's the rapture. Mark 13, after the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and then shall he send his angels and gather together his elect. So in Joel, he said the sun and the moon shall be turned into darkness before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Well, here we got an after and a before, which makes it easy to line things up. After the tribulation, the sun and the moon go dark. And the sun and the moon go dark before the day of the Lord. Well, duh, that ought to be easy to put together. The day of the Lord starts after the tribulation. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord. And see, the day of the Lord has two parts. There are hundreds of verses that talk about the day of the Lord scattered all through the Bible. Um, the day of the Lord, sometimes it talks about the day of the Lord being a day of great judgment and vengeance. and Everything goes bad. Other times it says the day of the Lord's wonderful. You know, the lion and the lamb lay down together. Yeah, there are two parts to the day of the Lord. And I've got those on my chart. The first part is the time of his wrath. Going to be bad. The second part is the time of great blessing. During that second half, uh, half nothing, 97 years, during that time of the day of the Lord, Satan is bound in hell. And he's released at the end of the thousand years. And they said he's going to come back in like manner. So there's a time of tribulation. Then the sun and the moon go dark. Then the day of the Lord starts. So I cover the tribulation on my part four of my book and my video series and my chart. So we talk about that uh, in great detail. I don't know which part you want to focus on. But the wrath of God is in the day of the Lord. I could probably get... I, don't, I got the wrong slides for that. I got like 50,000 slides on this, but uh, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people to accomplish these things. And, and so well, to answer if, your question, I, yeah. I think I think we started the 70th week. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. And what's interesting, uh, you know, you keep mentioning the sun being dark and the moon turned to blood. You have that on your timeline. What's interesting in the pre-trib world, they never talk about that event. They, If you look at Clarence Larkin's chart, all it says in the sixth seal is physical changes. And I think there's a reason for that. And also in uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice's book, Charting the End Times, uh, they, they do the same thing. They don't specifically reference that event. And I think one of the reasons is because you show the verses that the that happens after the tribulation and it happens before the day of the Lord. That's spelled out. But also when you go back, especially those Old Testament passages, it's clear that the day of the Lord is the time of wrath, uh, without a doubt. When God's when God's pouring out His wrath, and so the when you you can and your your charts do this, your book does this. It clearly shows that God's wrath happens after the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord comes after the sun's dark and moon turn to blood. That comes after the tribulation. But yet, what more I'm hearing more and more pre-tribbers do is they're now just saying that Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the rapture, that it's about a regathering of the Jews. And, okay. a, but a lot of Baptists are saying that now. Have you heard that argument that that's uh, about, or that's about the glorious appearing, not the blessed hope? Have you heard that argument? I have, I have not heard it, but I would say they've got to be certifiably Bible illiterate to believe such a thing. Read Matthew 24. Read the chapters. I'll call it up again here for you. It couldn't be more clear. They said, Lord, when are you coming and what's the sign? Same thing in Mark 13. And these are referring to the, it's the disciples talking to him. And he, Jesus is talking back to his disciples. He tells them clearly, this is for them, guys. I'm coming after the tribulation when the sun and the moon go dark. Uh, I can't find the particular slides here, but I'll just start right here. Slide number... Uh, uh, 68, okay, Alt-DV, 6-8, enter. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately. Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? Same thing in Mark 13 and Luke 21. So here they are, when are you coming, what's the sign, when are you coming? Here it is, the next 23 verses describing the tribulation. Who's he talking to? 
He's talking to his disciples. They're the ones that ask the question, when are you coming? What's the sign? At the end of this passage, let's see if this describes the rapture. Here it is in orange. I'll blow it up for you here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Is that the rapture? First Thessalonians 4. And he shall gather his, send his angels and gather together his elect. It's not, it's not gathering them together back to Israel. He's gathering them together to call up to heaven. You read it in the passage, Mark 13, Luke 21. Um, so, I'm sorry, I have to strongly disagree. I feel yeah. bad. And if Baptists want to reject me, I don't care, okay? Yeah. I believe I'm a Baptist because I think they're the closest to what the Scripture teaches. But if I find somebody else closer, I'll join them. The name means nothing to me. I'm not going to defend a doctrine that I know isn't true, okay? Okay, let's see. In those days, this is the Mark passage, Mark 13, 24. After the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be betrayed, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he shall send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds and from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Where is he taking him to? Back to Jerusalem? No, to heaven. This is the rapture, guys. You're yeah, wrong. I, I agree 100%. But, and uh, honestly, until post-trib started becoming a bigger thing, I never heard anyone teach that Matthew 24 was not the rapture. But pretty much all of my pre-trib friends now are saying that, yeah, that is not the rapture. Uh, they'll say that the rapture and the glorious appearing are two different things. And and that's spelled out in this book right here. Uh, that has well, they're, they're, they're correct about that. The rapture and the glorious appearing are not the same thing. Put my chart back up here, brother. Yep. We get raptured out at the end of the tribulation. We go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then the second advent, the second half of the second coming, is when he comes down, appears to the whole world, his return in glory. And the battle of Armageddon is fought after the three years of marriage supper of the Lamb and after the day, the day of time of God's wrath has fallen on the earth. So I'd say this is what they're talking about, the glorious appearing, when he comes down all the way to the earth. Mm -hmm. Now every eye shall see him and everyone, those that, even those that pierced him. That would be the right. people who crucified him. Well, I, I would definitely, yeah, I would definitely agree that the rapture is one event, and then Christ coming onto the earth, stepping foot in the Mount of Olives, is a different event. I just believe the glorious appearing is the rapture because the Bible says, "When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with Him in glory." You know, uh, it says, uh, uh, "Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when we shall uh, see Him, we'll be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." And so, I believe uh, when He the rapture is his appearing. That's when we see him. That's when we're changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. But I do agree that there is a separate event that is at the end of the, mm -hmm. of that. So it is, it's frustrating though, that people are trying to claim that Matthew 24 is not the rapture. It's just uh, kind of a painful thing to listen to. But do you, do you have any hope that at least, cause you know, I'm from the independent fundamental Baptist world. And do you have any hope that they're ever going to come around on this and that we might you know eventually make this the primary view of the coming of christ getting the independent temperamental fundamental baptist to admit they're wrong is that what you're asking is that gonna yeah, happen pretty much <laughs> uh, it's it's been known to happen a time or two in the last two thousand years but not very often okay now do you do you still consider yourself somewhat dispensational in your theology, because a lot of people would credit the pre-trib doctrine and a lot of these things to dispensationalism. Is that a term that you use or a, a label that you would identify with? I'm a little cautious about that label. Uh, I believe God has worked. A dispensation simply means a period of time. God worked with the people during a certain period of time, like with the Jews. He gave them the law. When Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and he read them to the people, the people said, we can do it. Biggest mistake in history. That would have been the time to say, Lord, we can't do it. For the next 1,400 years, God worked with the Jews to show, you, show them, you cannot do this. You need me to do it for you. 
Your salvation is should be by grace, through faith, not through your works. There's only two religions in the world, and that's Cain and Abel. Cain brought his fruit and vegetables. Hey, God, look what I did for you. You better let me into heaven because of what I did. God wouldn't take his sacrifice. Abel brought a lamb. And people today, churches today, are still doing the same thing, trying to get into heaven by their works. Look, Lord, I've got to go to heaven because I got baptized or catechized or pasteurized or circumcised or something. Mm -hmm. And they think that's going to get them, and it's not. So God does work with different people in different time frames. There is such a thing as dispensations, I understand. The Bible even uses that word, dispensations. But I think some people take it way too far. So yeah, I have to know a little more specifically exactly what they're talking about. So mm -hmm. salvation's always been by grace through faith. That hasn't changed. Um, yeah, and I, I agree too. And, you know, I, I consider myself non-dispensational. I fellowship with dispensationalists as long as I, I draw the line with when they teach faith plus works in different dispensations. I, I agree with you 100%. It's always been by grace through faith. And so, you know, do you do you believe that differences in eschatology, timing of the rapture, things like that, you know, that these are fellowship breakers or anything like that? How divisive are you over this issue? Oh, no, I can be friends with I'm friends with some atheists and we can disagree on lots of things just so they understand that I'm right. They're wrong. That's no problem. <laughs> OK. And then and like just, you know, when it comes to these things, too, you know, when it comes to what you wrote in your book, you know, just just how sure are you? You're right. I, I think earlier you might have gave like a percentage or something like that, but uh, it, yeah. you know, this was written about ten years ago now, I guess. So, right. what are there any things that you would add to or take away from your book that you've written? I, I don't think so. I think okay. I'm still, yeah. Okay. Well, hey, well, this has you know definitely been good. Uh, a lot of great information. Uh, do you have any? Um, you know, what are some of your recommendations for people who are maybe uh, on the fence about these things? Uh, whenever you talk to people who are sincere, not just trying to argue with you, but they're sincere, asking right. questions, uh, trying to figure this all out. How do you typically advise those people? Well, there's such a thing as called uh, Pascal's wager. Pascal said, look, if I'm wrong and you're right, I haven't lost anything. He's talking about atheism. He said, if atheists, if you're right and I'm wrong and I've been trying to serve God and he doesn't exist, I haven't lost anything. But if I'm right and there is a God and you're wrong, you've lost everything. So I can't lose either way called Pascal's wager. I'm on the side that no matter what happens, if there's a God or if there's not a God, I still win. I've had a wonderful life. I've tried to serve who I thought was God. So I think it's kind of the same with the rapture. If it turns out the Lord comes back tomorrow and catches us out of here, I, I haven't lost anything. So I, but if it turns out the Lord does not come and we do go through the tribulation, those people who are expecting him to come are going to be disappointed and going to turn away from him in droves. Mm. I think the pre-trib doctrine is going to ruin a lot of people's Christianity. I think so too. They're going to say, yeah, you didn't come get me, Lord. So, well, I've, I've had a lot of people ask, you know, what are you going to do? You know, if all of a sudden the Lord comes back tonight, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like uh, that sure. would be great. I'd be thrilled. So, well, hey, I really appreciate you coming on here, and I would encourage everyone out there, you know, if you, if you can, go on his website, uh, purchase this book. Uh, you know, every, everybody knows, everybody knows Dr. Kent Hovind. And again, you know, I I do I appreciate, um, you know, your stand all these years on these things. Um, it really is uh, a pleasure getting to, to speak with you. I did. I grew up uh, watching your seminars, and. Um, you know, was just always a big fan. I remember uh, hearing about, in fact, where I first heard that you went to prison, I was actually at your old church uh, that um, I've, I've heard you reference before that in from Pekin, Illinois, I was actually preaching oh, yeah. there. Uh, I went to that church when I was a baby. And I, I remember hearing you mention that one time. I'm like, I know that church. I was like, I, I went there when I was a baby, but um, don't remember it. It was, and I think it was after, uh, you were there. I think you were there in the 70s. Is that true? I got saved in 69 and was there for four years. Then went off to college. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So and then so, I came back and, and I came back as pastor of the church and okay. started a Christian school. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but um, I remember I heard about that. And so, you know, just uh, I, I hate what happened there, uh, but uh, I'm glad you're out. And um, 
you know, glad you've helped uh, get the word out about the subject because I, uh, that during that time when I was kind of coming around on this, you know, I did, I kind of felt like I was on an island alone. And so it was encouraging when I found out Kent Hovind was now post-trib. And uh, so I, I appreciate your stand on that and your book. It was a big encouragement to me when I read it uh, 10 years ago. And so uh, definitely, uh, you know, wish you the best. Yeah. Any final words for the audience? Well, yeah, uh, come down and visit our dinosaur adventure land. Somebody gave us 140 acres in Lenox, Alabama, straight north of Pensacola, 70 miles. It's free. We have a camp down here, 25 cabins you can stay in, all kinds of, it's 17 lakes for fishing. And uh, it's fabulous. Science Center, there's 12,000 square feet full of really cool science experiments to teach about God's creation. I would encourage everybody, get busy, find something to do for the Lord, okay? If you're not going to shoot, carry bullets or take care of the wounded or pay for the bullets or do something, find something to do for the Lord. People say, Brother Hovind, did God call you to do this? I don't know. I never got a letter or a phone call, mm -hmm. but it sure needs to be done. Somebody needs to teach on creation. And that's, you know, God gave me a gift of keeping things simple for fourth graders. So I try to teach it down where I can understand it and everybody else seems to like it. So come on down. Well, hey, I appreciate it, and I do. I, I love the theme of the book. I love the way it starts out showing the things that people are willingly ignorant of. If God created the world, then he probably has the right to judge the world. If he judged the world before with the flood, like he said he would, he'll probably judge the world again in the future with fire, like he said he would. And people today, they don't like accountability. That's, that's all there is to it. But whether they like it or not, they are accountable to God yeah. and Jesus Christ will return one of these days. So let's get that word out and tell others. And so I appreciate everyone watching and we uh, make sure you like and share this and uh, go check out his website and get your hand on uh, that book and give it out to somebody and hopefully help change their mind in these things. So thank you all for watching. God bless. <laughs>